You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Conflict and Triumph, Episode 1 with Walter Fight. Heavenly Father, who are we that you should be mindful of us? We thank you for all your blessings and invite you into our presence in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled this series, Conflict and Triumph. And there's a history behind this series. People always want to know, is God going to gather his people at the end of time into one movement? Or will truth be scattered everywhere in every single movement? How is God going to work? And is there any organization or is there a church which represents the truths of the gospel in their totality? Or does everyone have a small portion? The other question that people ask is, why should the United States of America play a prominent role in prophecy? And uh, we all know that the book of Revelation, chapter 13, talks about the second beast of Revelation and what this power will do and how it will force the world to honor the first beast and all of these issues. And it is important to understand why the United States of America would play a prominent role in prophecy. And then if there is a final gathering, why should it have commenced, according to Revelation 13, in a country that was to be a refuge for all the persecuted people of Europe and other regions of the world? And why not other countries? Why not Europe itself, which is the, the, the boiling pot, as it were, of religious antagonism and conflict and triumph? Well, I'm trying to answer these questions. And then, if it is so that God is gathering a people for the end times... Will there once again be this great conflict? And how will it end? What will be the end of all of these issues? So these are some of the questions. So tonight I'm going to start with history. Now history is not always everyone's cup of tea, but it's important. And so we will look at the historic events and we'll see how God organized it behind the scenes through all the conflict, all the bloodshed, all the tears, and how he managed to bring them all to a new continent where these ideas could eventually bring forth the final movements. So this first one is called Pearls of Truth in Settings of Gold. Now what are these pearls of truth and why are they important? There is a study of history that is not to be condemned. Sacred history was one of the studies in the schools of the prophets. 
And the record of his dealings with the nations would trace the footsteps of Jehovah. So today we are to consider the dealings of God with the nations of the earth. We are to see in history the fulfillment of prophecy. To study the workings of providence in the great reformatory movements and to understand the progress of events in the marshalling of the nations for the final conflict of the great controversy. There will be a final conflict. And we have to study the history to find out how all of this came together and what the issues really are. Now many think that they must consult. This comes from the book Christian Education. Many think that they must consult commentaries on Scripture in order to understand the meaning of the Word of God. And we would not take the position that commentaries should not be studied. They have their place. But it will take much discernment to discover the truth of God under the mass of the words of men. How little has been done by the church as a body professing to believe the Bible to gather up the scattered jewels of God's word into one perfect chain of truth. The jewels of truth do not lie upon the surface, as many suppose. The mastermind in the confederacy of evil is ever at work to keep the truth out of sight and to bring into full view the opinions of great men. The enemy is doing all in his power to obscure heaven's light through educational processes. For he does not mean that men shall hear the voice of the Lord saying, This is the way, walk ye in it. Now, in our theological schools in the world, we study the thoughts of great men. And uh, sometimes the great thinkers in the theological realm like Karl Barth and all of these people, become more important than the Word of God itself. And sometimes one is tempted to say, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who is this Barth fellow? I'm not running down Barth, I'm just saying, the Word of God should be our study. We should for ourselves know what the truth is. There is danger in setting a person above the Word of God. I want to know how many people at the end of time will be lost because they trusted some individual or their pastor above the Word of God. I think we will be horrified when we find that out. So we should test every word by the Word of God. If we go to the book of Revelation and we study the churches, the church that coincides with the period of the Reformation was the church in Sardis. And the Reformation did a marvelous job of putting Jesus Christ back into the center of the gospel, where he had been marginalized by saints and other individuals. And we read in Revelation chapter 3 and unto the angel of the church in Sardis addressing the reformatory period. These things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. 
That's a serious accusation. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. So the works of the Reformation, as wonderful as they were, were not perfect in the eyes of God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. That means think again. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. In other words, the reformed movements will not understand the issues pertaining to the second coming of Christ. Because they have not completed the work. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. God is not condemning the entire reformatory period. And there will be great men who will stand on that sea of glass one day. Nevertheless, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So there is something that has to be done. It's called overcoming. There's some overcoming to be done. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That was a statement by George Santayana. And then in a speech in 1948, Winston Churchill changed the wording a little bit and he said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. And then he expanded on it in a rather eloquent way when he said, regarding the wars of Europe, when the situation was manageable, it was neglected. And now that it is thoroughly out of hand, we apply too late the remedies which then might have affected a cure. There is nothing new in the story. It is as old as the Sibylline books. It falls into that long, dismal catalogue of the fruitlessness of experience and the confirmed unteachability of mankind. That's quite a statement. Confirmed unteachability of mankind. Want of foresight. Unwillingness to act when action would be simple and effective. Lack of clear thinking. Confusion of counsel until the emergency comes until self-preservation strikes its jarring gong. These are the features which constitute the endless repetition of history. And I think he had a point. I think we are on the verge of repeating history. That which seemed impossible in this modern age will return, as he says, with uh, a sounding gong. And people will realize that they had their opportunities, but never took them. So we have to find out what the jewels of truth are. These truths have to be gathered into one coherent whole. And the question is, how did God provide for this? John 16, verse 13, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truths, he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. There are two aspects to this verse. 
And that is a future aspect. He will show you things to come. And then the aspect of guiding you into how much of the truth? All of it. All of it. So God does not want His church to be lacking in truth. God does not want His church to be partially in the truth. It's either all or it is incomplete. Lead me in thy truth, says Psalm 25, verse 5, and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. If any man do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. John 7, 17. Now as Janus and Yamris withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. 2 Timothy 3.8 There will be attempts to undermine the truth. And that has been taking place throughout history. Now who were Janus and Jambres? Well, according to tradition, it's not in the Bible, but according to tradition, Janus and Jambres were the magicians that opposed Moses in Egypt. And we read the story, and it's quite fascinating, in Exodus 7. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. So here was one religion pitched against another religion. And we know the story that Aaron's rod swallowed up the other rods. Now what is this enchantment? It's an incantation or a spell. It's a magical formula intended to trigger a magical effect on a person or object. The formula can be spoken, it can be sung, it can be chanted, an incantation can also be performed during ceremonial rituals or prayers. Other words synonymous with incantation is spells, charms, to bewitch. In the world of magic, the incantations are said to be performed by wizards, witches, and fairies. Now I find it interesting that Paul applies these terms to false teachers in the church. Acts 8 verse 9, But there was a certain man called Simon, who before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he himself was some great one. Now this same Simon became sorcerer to Nero, and some believe that the Simon Magus is the real Simon that is referred to when it comes to the Simon that rules in Rome. Acts 8.11 And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries, incantations, all of these issues that we discussed. But now look at Galatians. He's talking to the Christian church. He's talking to believers and he's saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified amongst you. So is it possible that even if in Paul's day, the church was being bewitched 
that it could be bewitched even to this day? Is that possible? So we need to be very careful. So the two issues regarding the church of Sardis that stand out is, number one, I have not found thy works perfect before God. The Reformation didn't finish the job. It started it. And it started it in a beautiful way. And the people lost their lives by the millions because of it. The other issue was, thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, that's also a rather fascinating statement. A few names that have not defiled. Is that the majority or is that the minority? That's the minority. So, what about the majority then? Would they have defiled their garments? Let's have a look at some of those who had not defiled their garments according to the historic records. Well, it all started out long before Martin Luther, a hundred years before him, with Wycliffe, and then from Wycliffe's teachings, it had been transported to Bohemia, and there Jan Hus, or John Hus, took it up and started spreading the teachings of Wycliffe. And he paid with his life. And when he was tied to the stake, he said, you are now going to burn a goose, because Hus in Czech means a goose. But in a century, you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. A prophecy regarding Martin Luther, who exactly a hundred years later came and completed or commenced with the work that Jan Hus had started. And Hus was actually way ahead of the later reformers. These are the six errors which Jan Hus nailed to the Bethlehem church in Prague. The first error was that the priests who boasted of making the body of Jesus Christ in the Mass and of being the creator of their creator. So he denied the Roman Catholic teaching on the Mass. The second was that the confession exacted of the members of the church, I believe in the Pope and the saints, in opposition to which Hus taught that men are to believe in God only. And the third error was the priestly pretension to remit the guilt and punishment of sin. And that, of course, was through indulgences and the confessional. And the fourth was the implicit obedience exacted by ecclesiastical superiors to all their commands. And the fifth was the making no distinction between a valid excommunication and one that was not so, one that was based merely on the powers that be. And the sixth error was simony. In other words, peddling the gospel for money. And this he had designated as heresy. And uh, he believed... Could a priest be found who was not guilty of it? So history tells us that Janus took these truths and nailed them to the church door. Okay, so he placed them 
on the Bethlehem Chapel. But the interesting thing is, at that time, there were rival popes. And this helped the cause. But I want you to notice what happened. So another matter had now happened which helped to deepen the impression which his tract on the six errors had made. John XXIII, he was the Pope, had a bull against King Ladislaus. And why? Because Ladislaus has supported the rival Pope, Gregory XII, one of the rivals of John. And so the Pope commanded all emperors, kings, princes, cardinals, and men of whatever degree, by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, to take up arms against Ladislaus and utterly to exterminate him and his supporters. And he promised to all who should join the crusade or who should preach it or collect funds for its support to pardon of all their sins and immediate admission into the paradise should they die in war. So this, of course, created great anger in Bohemia and it helped the movement and long before there was a Martin Luther, there was this massive Protestant Hussite movement which virtually converted the whole of Bohemia. It's also interesting that uh, long before Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, they had already preached against indulgences and they had this image of the devil selling indulgences. So in short, the same indulgences which were accorded to those who bore arms for the conquest of the Holy Land, and uh, this created tremendous anger, of course, in the Roman Catholic circles, and the Bohemians were a hundred years ahead of Martin Luther. Now today, are there any remnants of this church left? Now, I want you to imagine the scene. The whole country rallies behind Hus. They become Protestant. They change the rituals of the Mass. They throw out the images. They start preaching a pure gospel based on the Word of God. And then the Hussite wars break out. They are invincible as they stand together for this truth. If you read the history of the Hussite wars, it's amazing how the small Hussite army would defeat waves of papal armies coming into Bohemia one after the other. But it took its toll. And eventually internal strife started breaking up the cohesion. And as a consequence, what happened? Many of them decided that the price was too high. And so they compromised with Rome. So history tells us that a contingency of the Hus's followers struck a deal with Rome that allowed them to realize most of their doctrinal goals while recognizing the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And these were called Utraquists. Is such a compromise possible? Can truth and error reside next to each other? in harmony. And the remaining Hussites, they continued to operate outside of the Roman Catholic Church, and within 50 years of Hus's death had become an independent, organized 
brethren or unity of the brethren. And they maintained the Hussite theology and later on they took over the Lutheran theology. So they were Protestant in every form. But they were persecuted for their truth. And they were hounded. And the remnant of them is the Moravian church. And they were the earliest Protestant church rebelling against the authority of Rome some 50 years before Martin Luther. They had been organized into this Protestant church that believed in the Bible and the Bible alone and had adopted later on the Lutheran doctrines. And they had another issue that set them apart. They believed in universal education, which was a major, major shift in thinking. I mean, universal education. Education was only for the elite. The general public didn't need education. They were serfs. And so by the middle of the 16th century, as 90% as of the inhabitants of the Czech lands were Protestant. And then came compromise. And what happens when you compromise? Well, it is a disaster. The Moravians in the 18th century that wanted to cling to their truths, they fled from the persecution and they came to the United States of America. And they settled there in Pennsylvania. And uh, they started evangelizing the people around them. And the prime objective was to reach the colonies and to convert the native population. And uh, they were not looked upon kindly, but they brought with them their truths, and these truths that had escaped the persecution, this mindset they brought to the United States of America. And having hounded them out of the land, what became of the rest of this 90% Protestant country. What was their motto? Unitas fratum, unity of the brethren. They believed in sticking together. And they believed in the conquering lamb, and that was their symbol. They believed in the lamb of God. They believed the biblical doctrines of the Reformation. And when they had left, what happened to the Czech Republic? Presently, 39.8% of Czechs consider themselves atheists. 39.2% are Roman Catholic. What were they before? 90% Protestant. Now, 39.8% atheist. 39.2% Roman Catholic. 4.6% Protestant of which 1.9% in the Czech-founded Hussite reform movement. There's nothing left of Protestantism in that Czech Republic. The Czech Republic is one of the least religious countries in the world, with more than 50%, says the source, being atheistic. What happens when you compromise on truth? This is what happens. This is what happens. And then came Martin Luther, a hundred years after Hus. And we know the history. I'm not going to go through the history. We did that in previous lectures. And they discovered the five solas 
of the Protestant movement. Sola Scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone. Sola Fide, faith and faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Those were the principles of the Protestant Reformation. But what did the, the book of Revelation say about Sardis? I have not found your work complete. Now the Reformation should have been ongoing, but there were issues and mindsets that were prevalent in the Middle Ages that curtailed the movement, prevented it from going where it could have gone, had it completed the work, because the work was not complete. And while Martin Luther was hidden away in the Wartburg, translating the Bible as in his Elias as Squire George, Junker Jörg, he was uh, not dressed as a monk anymore, but as a squire, he had a sword by his side, as a disguise, otherwise the Catholic uh, prelates would have organized his early demise. But while he was incarcerated, as it were, the Reformation continued. And one of the most important people was a man by the name of Andreas Bodenstein. And he came from a town which was called Karlstadt, and so he became known as Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt. Have you heard of him? Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt, later on he just became known as Karlstadt. So when you speak about Karlstadt, that's not his given name, that's the town that he came from. Now, he was a contemporary of Martin Luther's, and his history is fascinating. So while Luther and his friends were uncovering the great truths of the Reformation... There were nevertheless differences of opinion with regard to the pace of reform and the issues of reform. So besides the great sola, scriptura, fides, and Christos, there were other things. What about the other truths? What about these other precious pearls in the Bible? Weren't they to be gathered as well? So Karlstadt was the dean of the University of Wittenberg. He was the one who conferred the doctorate on Martin Luther. So he was Martin Luther's superior. In the beginning, Karlstadt didn't want to go along with the Reformation, but once he, he embraced it, he was enthusiastic. And he was a fighter together with Martin Luther. And in the beginning, he was the main spokesperson besides Luther. So he was born in the same year as Luther and was only a few months older than him. And he first opposed Luther, but by 1517 he was one with Luther on the question of justification by faith alone. And Karlstadt was ahead of Luther on the question of sola scriptura. He was the first one to say, the Bible and the Bible alone should be our criterion. Regarding faith and works, he was also ahead of the Reformation. Because the Reformation, having uncovered this beautiful truth of justification by faith, was a little bit slow in terms of sanctification. And so Karlstadt said that the moral law was extremely important. So he regarded the moral law as binding, stating that far from abrogating the law, it makes us lovers and doers of the law. 
And he also introduced the communion in both kinds. This Hus had done before, but Martin Luther hadn't studied Hus in any shape or form. He had started the Reformation on the basis of indulgences. And uh, he also said it was idolatry to elevate the host. And while Martin Luther was incarcerated in Wittenberg, or in the Wartburg at least, Karlstadt was associated with what they called the Bildersturm, the storming of the statues. Because Karlstadt realized that the veneration of statues and images was contrary to the law of God. Remember he said that the law of God was not to be abrogated. And so he started introducing what they called the Bildersturm, storming of the images. And he had the images of Mary and the symbols and the Marian shrines removed and some of the shrines on the roads he had removed. And the pace of reform was a little bit too fast for the general German. And Luther eventually became involved and said, whoa, 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 we have to slow this down. So Karlstadt was too progressive. If you go to the story of Protestantism by Holderstein Gale, he tells the story of Andrew Bordenstein. And he said, John Eck, this was the Catholic prelate who argued against Martin Luther, the Chancellor of the University of Ing Ingolstadt had attacked Luther's opinion in a work entitled The Obelisks. And to this counterpathlet had been issued by Andreas Bodenstein, better known as Karlstadt, who was now challenged by Eck to one of those public disputations which played no mean part in the controversy in the days when there was no newspaper press. But before the day was fixed for the disputation, arrived Eck must needs publish 13 theses in which he plainly attacked Luther, and thus the professor's self-tied bonds were loosed, and Luther himself was drawn into the war of words with Eck. And uh, both of them were involved in this early conflict. The disputation is important, for it marks a distinct stage in the drawing of the line between Rome and the Reformers. Free will was first debated, Eck and his friends maintained that man, note this, without the aid of the Holy Spirit and simply of himself has the power to choose what is spiritually good and to obey God. That is exactly what Rome believes to this very day. That man has the capacity to decide for himself what is right and what is wrong. And that is exactly what the serpent said in the Garden of Eden. That you will know good and evil. You will be able to distinguish. You don't need God to tell you. So Luther and Karlstadt first contended on this issue and Eck began by claiming that the supremacy of a divine appointment basing his argument on Christ's work, thou art Peter and the rock and on this rock will I build my church and Luther replied as do Protestants today that it is an unnatural interpretation to make Peter the rock. And then, interestingly, Eck said that they were patrons of the heresies of Wycliffe and Hus. And Martin Luther remembered those words. And when he got home, he thought to himself, I must find out what these 
people had said. And this is ex-reference to Huss and Wycliffe made Luther study the writings of Huss. In quietness and confidence, Luther and his growing band of friends pursued their way at Wittenberg. At Leipzig, as we have seen, Eck had taunted Luther with being a patron of the heresies of Wycliffe and Huss. Once back in his university, Luther set to work to study the writings of Huss and found in him to his delight an exposition of that same doctrine which he had himself learned from St. Paul, the doctrine of justification by faith. And he exclaimed, We have all, he exclaimed in his joy, Paul, Augustine, and myself been Hussites without knowing it. It's interesting how something that is against something can make you interested in something, and it happened in my own life. In my own life, I was once confronted on the telephone by someone who had nothing good to say about an author that uh, we consider very enlightened and uh, screamed at me for being in an organization that embraces the writings. And uh, that made me study them. I thought to myself, such animosity, there must be something interesting. And so I had a look, just like Martin Luther did. But the problem was, Karlstadt was too progressive for Luther. These are the history sources. And in order to accommodate the elector, actually reversed some of the reforms, thus creating tension between himself and Karlstadt. Karlstadt was going too fast for Luther. And... Uh, Karlstadt even recognized the Sabbath. He didn't distinguish it as the seventh day being Saturday at that stage, but he wrote enough about it that Martin Luther eventually wrote, if Karlstadt were to write further about the Sabbath, Sunday would have to give way, and the Sabbath, that is Saturday, must be kept holy. So these truths were being set aside and not embraced. But the thoughts were put into the public mind. Another thing that Karlstadt did is he set forth the concept that the church was a free body of voluntary believers. And this is a very important issue. Who could elect their own leaders unlike the Lutheran concept of the establishment church where church and state were inseparable in hierarchy he also, like Luther, believed in soul sleep. But the Lutherans, because of the controversy surrounding this issue, never included this concept in their catechism. And he also advocated that the only sword to be used in furthering the cause of Christ was the word. So Karlstadt had all of these Protestant ideas, these reformatory ideas, but they were never implemented. When the Reformation took hold in Europe... And eventually, after all those wars were fought, and there were Protestant areas and Catholic areas in the whole of Germany and in other areas, the church and the state came together. So if you were in a Catholic area, you had to be a Catholic. If the ruler was Catholic, you had to be Catholic. If the ruler was Protestant, you either had to change your religion or move to a Catholic canton. And so the church and the state worked together. And everybody in that area 
was governed by the church and the state. Now, Karlstadt was the first one to say no. Church and state should not be together. The next event that happened was another man by the name of Balthasar Hubmeier of Waldhut. I like these names. Balthasar Hubmeier of Waldhut. Now, he was one of the most respected Anabaptist theologians of the Reformation. Now, let me tell you something about the Anabaptists. This was a new movement. These people had suddenly realized, now, doesn't the Bible teach adult baptism? Surely there is a truth that we have neglected. And some of these people were serious Bible students. But unfortunately, fanaticism also came into the group. Whenever truth is discovered, the devil is at work on the other side. So what happened to all of these Anabaptists? Well, he was one of the most respected of the Anabaptists. And he believed that a free church of free believers could not be subject to the state. This was a dangerous thing. And he believed in rebaptism. Anabaptist means to baptize again. And uh, the Anabaptists were hounded, whether they were in Protestant countries or whether they were in uh, Catholic counties. It made no difference. And then came another man, and his name was Thomas Münster. And he was a major problem because he fervored radicalism. So he was a German preacher and a radical theologian of the early Reformation whose opposition to both Martin Luther and the Roman Catholic Church led to his open defiance of the late feudal authority in central Germany. And he became a leader of what was called the German peasant or plebeian uprising of 25, commonly known as the German peasant wars. So these radicals that came into the church, they have an interesting history. And uh, one wonders whether they did it of their own accord or whether there were powers fomenting it from behind the scenes. And then another group known as the Zwickau Prophets, uh, they came from the town of Zwickau. There were three of them. And they joined this movement, these three prophets. They joined Thomas Münzer. They were Thomas Drexel, Nicholas Storch, and Mark Thomas Stübner. And they preached an apocalyptic, radical alternative to Lutheranism. They taught that you have to take the sword and by the sword force everyone to adopt the Christian religion and thereby to set up the kingdom of God. So an attempt to establish by revolution an ideal Christian commonwealth with absolute equality amongst persons and the community of goods. Now there are some people who believe that these Zwickau prophets were actually uh, agents of Rome to undermine the Reformation, which said the Bible and the Bible alone, and that the only weapons that were to be used were the sword of the word. So one of the most distinctive features of the Zwickau prophets was their spiritualism. Now I want you to think about these things happening in the days of Martin Luther 
and how important these things are today. Is history repeating itself? Are we at the same point in history where all of these crazy manifestations are in the public realm out there? So perhaps the most distinctive feature of the Zwickau prophets was the spiritualism, where they believed that direct revelations from the Holy Spirit and not Scripture were the authority and theological method. In other words, the way you feel and the impressions that you have determine the way that you should go. Martin Luther said no. The Bible and the Bible alone. So the Twicker prophets also held the imminent apocalypticism, which led them to believe that the end of days would come soon, and they sought a believer's church which would be separate from state churches of Protestantism and Catholicism. And they fomented the wars with the peasants. So they arrived in Wittenberg, and Luther soon preached eight sermons against those he would label schwärmer or fanatics. And the force of these sermons was enough to calm down the growing radicalism of the cities. But uh, eventually, these prophets were arrested and they were put to death. Right, so the peasant wars were inspired by changes brought about by the Reformation and all of these people. And uh, there's a book called Secret History, and it states that the issues were thus not dissimilar to those of today. The divide between rich and poor, land inequality, lack of government representation led to calls for social justice. Have you heard these words today? And implementation of divine law and social equality. It's interesting that Münzer called himself the hammer and sickle of God. And 325 years later, Friedrich Engels would pen his book, The Peasant Wars in Germany, in 1850, and the writings of Marx and Engels would lay the foundation for Lenin's revolution. So there, there are people that believe that these early movements were the precursors of what we later, what later came to be known as the Jesuit order. Because this was before the Jesuit order. Now, what was the region where Martin Luther had his stronghold? Where is Wittenberg situated? In which part of Germany? It's in East Germany. So let's see what happens if you remove the Protestant mindset from that reason. Irreligion is predominant in the eastern part of Germany, which is considered to be the least religious region in the world. This is phenomenal. This is Europe. And if you look at the figures of the states of East Germany, Brandenburg, East Berlin, Mecklenburg, Saxony, and uh, etc., and you look at the figures there for not religious, 69 .9%, 74.3%, 70%, 66.9%, 74, 61. Up to 70% and even up to 75% atheist. This is the Protestant world. Nothing left of it. It is unbelievable. And even more shocking, 
when you look at these issues in Europe, the countries that were so fervent for the Protestant movement, like Sweden. Did you know that Sweden saved the Reformation? When the Swedish armies marched in, when the Protestants were almost at the point of defeat by the Roman Catholic armies, they saved the day. But they clung to their church-state system and would not allow any freedom of conscience. And anybody who opposed was put to death. And eventually, as a consequence of this system, what is the situation in these once Protestant countries? If you look at this graph of, the, of this map of the world, and you look at the top bar over there, the least religious countries in the world, 75% atheistic, obviously China stands out with 90% atheism in China today. But I'm not so interested in that. I'm interested in the, in the Protestant countries. Sweden, once a bastion of Protestantism, 76% of Sweden is secular atheistic today. 76%. The Czech Republic, 75% secular atheistic. And if you look at those countries with 50% or more unbelievers in them, you will note that Australia qualifies, the rest of Europe qualifies, and Canada qualifies, with more than half the population not believing the Bible or Protestant principles. So the only Protestant countries that are left, that still believe, you will find in the southern tip of Africa, in South Africa, you will see it is dark blue, which means that more than 75% of the people there still believe. And if you go and you look across over there at the United States of America, you will see that more than half of the people in the United States still believe in the Bible and the Word of God. So the United States is the last bastion of Protestantism where the entire plethora of truths that were gathered in the Reformation and post-Reformation are still present. Why did the truth have to come from the United States of America? Why? If you go to Southern Africa, with that vast Protestant population, why didn't it emanate from there? Well, you see, the Southern Africans... They came with the same model of Europe, state and church, Calvinistic thinking, and they entrenched themselves in that mindset. They didn't have all these pearls of truth permeating through the minds of men. So let's have a look at this Anabaptist movement. So the immediate issue creating the Anabaptist movement was not just baptism, but it was civil government. The two were related. To be baptized was a civil issue, and to refuse it tore a seamless Christian society apart. If you were going to be baptized as an adult, as a free thinker, deciding for yourself what you want to believe, you were at odds with the state. The state could not afford it, because there would be insurrection. There would be disunity. The state enforced 
one mindset. You were either Lutheran, or you were Catholic, or you were Calvinistic, or you were whatever you were. The state was the one that determined. So some of the radicals wanted to totally self-govern the church, free of government interference. And one wintry evening in a nearby village, the radicals met. These people were called radicals and baptized each other. And that's where the name rebaptizer or anabaptist came from. And what happened then? Well, it was contrary to the state. So they were persecuted. They were hounded. They were hounded by the Roman Catholic authorities. They first executed Michael Sattler. Then they started executing the others. And then if you have a look at the Martyr's Mirror, one of the books describes the persecution and execution of how many? Thousands of Anabaptists in various parts of Europe between 1525 and 1660. Thousands! And what was the way in which they were executed? Well, the decrees were, if you want to be baptized again, we'll baptize you. We'll drown you and make sure that you stay baptized forever. And so persecution broke out. The Protestant persecuted, the Catholics persecuted. This is the burning of the Dutch Anabaptist, Anakin Hendricks, who was charged with heresy. So these were the decrees that were issued. Whereas it is ordered and provided in common law that no man having once been baptized according to Christian order shall let himself be baptized again or for the second time, nor shall he be baptized any such. Hmm. And especially it is forbidden in the imperial law to do such on pain of death. On discovery, every Anabaptist and rebaptized man and woman of the age of reason shall be condemned and brought from natural life into death by fire, sword, and the like according to the person without proceeding by the inquisition of the spiritual judges. And these were the Protestant nations. Thousands upon thousands were slaughtered. Martin Luther first tried to say, Christians fight only with the word against the devil's teaching and work. I preach and speak and write, but I will force and drive no one, for faith must be willing and unconstrained. Heresy can never be resisted with fire. But even in his days, he had to capitulate. And these people were slaughtered by the thousands. One of the Anabaptists that was very prominent, now remember, within the Anabaptist movement, you had those who stuck to Protestant principles, the Bible, and the Bible alone. But you had fanatics that came in from every direction. Every truth that was discovered, every jewel, was opposed. One of them was Hans Hut, and Hans Hut had a fascinating idea. He was a pre-millennialist. He believed that Jesus Christ would come again before the millennium and that he himself would usher in that thousand-year period and that he would destroy his enemies when he came. And by the way, this is not a new idea. The Valdensians already had that idea. And he also believed in adult baptism. This was in 1527. Now remember, Martin Luther nailed his thesis to that door in 1517. So this is just 10 years later. 
And what happened to him? So they held a meeting in Augsburg, which is the town of Martin Luther. Protestant country. Unbelievable. And they put him on trial, and then they put him into prison. And he was tortured horrendously. By whom? By the Protestants. By the Protestants. And then a fire broke out, and he was asphyxiated. But the next day, they sentenced his dead body to death, and they burned him. That is not much better than what they did to Wycliffe. So this kind of attitude and this mindset occurred in both Catholicism and in Protestantism. And here was the problem. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk before he became a Protestant. And he was an Augustinian monk. And the Augustinians believed in the city of God that uh, the millennia would be set up when the church ruled. So the church had to rule together with the state. So this was the mindset. And here comes a man and says, no, this is not going to happen. And so the only way to deal with this was to get rid of this mindset. Hood accepted the teaching of Luther, but as early as 1524, he became disillusioned with the Lutheran teaching on baptism. And he strongly condemned Mincer's doctrine of the sword. So he was a pacifist. He was a, a Bible-based Anabaptist. Not to be put in the same category as the fanatics. And he was a fervent believer in the imminent coming of Christ. And he embraced the biblical teaching of the premillennial coming of Christ. So these ideas were placed amongst the reformers, but they were persecuted. So what could the persecuted people do? They fled. Where did they flee to? To areas where there was not such great persecution. So many of them fled from Germany to Dutch territories. And the ideas were fermented there amongst other believers. And another man, 1527, was Oswald Gleit. And he was a German Anabaptist and a Sabbatarian. These are not new issues. These are old thinking patterns. Jewels discovered in the Bible. And he penned an article from Zabbat about the Sabbath. And uh, he said that it was to be restored. He said there's also good evidence in his writing, which was lost but later reconstructed, that he strongly believed that Christ's second coming was to occur in the very near future. So he had an expectation of the coming of Christ. And later, he was arrested and imprisoned in Vienna in 1545, then taken out at night and drowned because he was an Anabaptist in autumn 1546. So what were these concepts that were placed into the minds of men, of the persecuted ones? Premillennialism, the Sabbath issue, adult baptism, all of these hounded and persecuted in Europe. He argued, either the Sabbath must be kept or all the other nine commandments must also be rejected. Sunday, he said, was the Pope's invention and its abrogation is the devil's work. Christ, he stated, has never broken or abolished the Sabbath, but instead he established it. His purpose was not to break or abolish the Sabbath, but to confirm and adorn it. His teachings on the Sabbath spread to Moravia, and even to Scandinavia. So these seeds of truth were planted in the minds. 
So today, about 4 million Anabaptists live in the world today. They're scattered all over the world. Most of them came to the United States of America. And the remnants of them are the Mennonites, the German Baptists, about 1.5 million, the Amish at around 300,000, and the Hutterites at 50,000. And these people are sitting in the United States of America with all of these mindsets, with many things that they might not have realized yet, many things which they had at that stage realized, and which they were prepared to die for, and for which they were prepared to give up home and countrymen and flee because they believed in a certain cause. Now what does the Bible say about those who love the Lord and want to follow him with their whole heart according to their conscience. To how many generations will the Lord honor them? Doesn't it say to a thousand generations of them that love me? Will God not eventually gather all the seeds of these together and bring them to a total truth? Martyr's Mirror or Bloody Theater first published in Holland in 1660, tells the story of all these martyrs, Dirk Willem, there who saved a man from drowning in an ice-covered river. The man had fallen in, and because he turned back to help him, the man thanked him by arresting him and having him <laughs> put to death. Amazing. So next to the Bible, this book, Martyr's Mirror, has historically been held as the most significant and prominent place in the Amish and Mennonite homes. But then there was the negative side to the Anabaptists. And often, you know, if a negative side comes in, the whole movement and all the pearls of truth that might be in that movement are discarded. But they're never lost. God makes sure they don't get lost. So the Anabaptist congregations that later developed into the Mennonites and the Hutterite churches tended not to promote the manifestations of the Spirit, where these people were rolling and hooping and laughing and carrying on. Do we have manifestations like that in the world today? Yes. Now, why are they so readily accepted today when in the past they were regarded as abhorrent and the people were persecuted and destroyed together with the, the truths that put church and state in jeopardy? So the Anabaptists insisted upon a free course of the Holy Spirit in worship, yet still maintained it must be judged according to the Scripture. So there are some interesting points. So many governments and religious leaders, both Protestant and Catholic, considered voluntary church membership as dangerous. And uh, the Minster Rebellion and all of these issues just confirmed them in this. So the Mennonites and the remnants, they fled. Now, where does the word Mennonite come from? It comes from Menno Simons. And uh, he was the one who penned most of the doctrines. And they believed in the ministry of uh, Jesus. They were strongly anti-Catholic. And over the years, the Mennonites have become known as one of the historic peace churches because of their commitment to pacifism. They said, we will not take up arms. We will not kill other people. It's not biblical to do so. So these ideas were also 
amongst uh, these Anabaptists. Now, it's interesting what they did to these poor people. So if the early history of Mennonites started with the Anabaptists in the German and Dutch-speaking parts of the world, and uh, they rejected, of course, infant baptism, and Menno Simons taught that the general view that the world will be subdued by the sword to conform to Christianity was wrong, and he believed in a personal return of the triumphant Christ in judgment. And he wrote, On the contrary, the Scriptures clearly testify that the Lord Christ must first come again before all his enemies are punished. Therefore let every person beware and observe the Scripture carefully, and he shall see that the Lord himself will destroy at his coming all his enemies. Uh, are there people in this audience today that believe this? Dietrich Phillips then expanded and he said, Law and gospel go together. Scriptural views on baptism and the Lord's Supper, foot washing, evangelical separation and love for one another, keeping all the commandments of God. Christians will be persecuted but should persecute no one. Is that an interesting theology? This mindset did not fit into Europe. The final reformation could never begin in Europe. It had to begin elsewhere, where all of these seeds of thought could be preserved. So while the Mennonites in colonial America were enjoying considerable religious freedom, their counterparts in Europe continued to struggle with persecution and temporary refuge under certain ruling monarchs. It's interesting when uh, they were pacifists and they wouldn't take part in the military actions. So what the governments did when they didn't persecute them too severely, they gave them farmland which was useless. But they were such hardworking people that they, they repaired the soils and they eventually produced crops and maintained themselves. And when the soil had been improved, the government kicked them off the land took it away, and gave them another bad piece of land. And so eventually they came to the shores of the United States of America where they had more freedom. Now many of these groups were persecuted in Europe. Why is it that some of these groups were allowed more freedom in the United States of America? And this is where history becomes fascinating. Some of these ruling monarchs, they were tyrannical in their own countries on the mainland, allowed latitude and freedom for these people to do their thing. Why? Well, you see, when, when North America was being colonized, there were different nations that wanted to be involved. The French were here. They were involved. The British were here. The Spanish were here. And so there was a problem you had to have people to popul populate th this new country. And uh, if you're going to kill them all, then what was the point? And so these princes and these kings allowed them certain freedoms in order to populate a certain area so that they could claim it for themselves. So here is a, here's a wisdom. The earth opened up and allowed these people 
to spread, even though had they stayed in their own continents, they would have been destroyed for what they believed. So the vast majority of Anabaptists of Swiss South German ancestry today live in the United States and Canada. Mennonite theology, what did they believe? They believed in salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the authority of the scriptures, believers' baptism, the Lord's sacrament understood as a symbol. In other words, they believed what the reformers believed. They believed in the breaking of bread, the separation from the shunning of the abomination, which they called the Roman Catholic Church. They had a believer's baptism. They had pastors in the church and not priests. Renunciation of the sword and renunciation of the oath, swearing to prove something. So they were fascinating. And some of them stayed back in the old era and believed that contamination with the world was dangerous. And eventually they formed little groups and stuck together. And the world considers them as peculiar. But God remembers their suffering. And God remembers the ideas that they put into the world. Now, the evangelical battles in England were also fascinating. If you have a look at the disputations between Thomas Moore and Tyndall, who translated the Bible, of course, uh, Tyndall never aligned himself with the Anabaptists, but he did accept the memorial supper. He refuted purgatory, and he believed, like Luther, in soul sleep. And Tyndall had a friend by the name of John Frith, and he wrote on the Sabbath. Every opportunity for these truths was available, but they were suppressed in Europe. So the only place where these truths could grow and foment between the population groups was here in the United States, in this North American continent. So Frith wrote on the Sabbath, the Jews have the word of God for their Saturday, since it is the seventh day. And they were commanded to keep the seventh day solemn. And we have not the word of God for us, but rather against us. For we keep not the seventh day as the Jews do, but the first, which is not commanded by God's law. So these are not new truths that were discovered here at the end of time. These were truths that were placed into the minds of people. And so he was an early Protestant English priest and he became a martyr for what he believed. And uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Frith was a young man noted for his godliness, intelligence and knowledge in the secular world. He could have risen to any height he wished, but he chose instead to serve the church and work for the benefit of others and not for himself. But because he didn't believe like the rest, he was put to death. The opinions for which men go to war, he said, aren't worth the terrible tragedies that they make. Let there be no longer any question amongst us of Zwinglians or Lutherans, for neither Zwingli nor Luther died for us, and we must be one in Christ Jesus. Mankind has been longing to be one in Christ Jesus from that earliest of times. So what got John killed was his fervor he had done for one of his Protestant hearers while still free. 
Someone said to him, please write down what you believe. And he did. He wrote down what he believed on the, last, on the Lord's Supper. And he was burnt at the stake for that. Another one who believed in the doctrine of soul sleep was uh, Frith himself and Milton. And Milton is, of course, the author of Paradise Lost. And he was an English poet, as you know, and he wrote at this time in the 1600s there on the mainland. And he wrote that the spirit of man should be separate from the body so as to have a perfect and intelligent existence independently of it is nowhere said in Scripture. And the doctrine is obviously at variance both with nature and reason. If it be true that the soul as well as the body sleeps till the day of resurrection, no stronger argument can be urged against the existence of purgatory. And in 1648, what did they do because people believed this doctrine? Even their great poets like John Milton, the parliament enacted a law ordering imprisonment for anyone holding the view that the soul of man dieth or sleepeth when the body is dead. Didn't Protestants persecute Protestants just as much almost as Catholics persecuted them? So where do these thoughts finally find fertile soils? The other issue, of course, was congregationalism. One of the greatest issues is the separation of church and state. So attempts to separate church and state were ruthlessly crushed in England. And it started with a man called Robert Brown, who decided that church and state should be separate, pleading for a ministry of eldership only, which would preach the word purely, celebrate the sacraments sincerely, exercise discipline with the assent of the whole congregation, and permit Christ to rule and reign in his church by the scepter of the word only. And then two preachers followed up on this. Their names were Barrow and Greenwood. And they said that we must walk in the ordinance of God according to his word. What happened to them? They were executed at Tyburn in April 1593. And their associate John Perry was hanged a month later. And here are two pictures in glass windows. Barrow and Greenwood refused to compromise their belief or conform to Anglicanism and as a consequence they died in 1593 martyrs for their belief in English congregationalism. The church must decide. People must have freedom of conscience. And eventually the Baptists evolved. This was a totally new movement. They claim that they're not associated with the Anabaptists at all, but the ideas of the Anabaptists had permeated through society. So the earliest Baptists can be traced to 1609 in Amsterdam, where one of the English separatists, John Smith, started preaching this. Now, what was a separatist? The separatist was one who believed that the Church of England didn't go far enough with the Reformation. They'd stopped. And some believed, like the Puritans, we have to change the church from within. And the separatists believed it's, nothing can be done. They won't change. So they separated. So, of course, they were hounded and persecuted, and they fled to Holland. And this is where John Smith then preached. And there were two groups. The one is called the General Baptists, 
considered Christ's atonement to extend to all people, and the particular Baptists believed that it extended only to the elect. So there were two groups of Baptists. So the general ones believed, not like Calvin in predestination, but believed that Christ died for everyone. And the particular ones, no, no, he died only for a particular few. They were Calvinists. And these ideas started rubbing up against each other in these areas. And uh, people like Thomas Halwell formulated a distinctively Baptist request that the church and the state be kept separate in matters of law. So the Baptists were one of the foremost groups that evolved saying church and state must be separate. And then Roger Williams established the first Baptist congregation in the North American colonies in the 18th and 19th century. So this is a very late movement. So modern churches, modern Baptist churches, trace their history to the English separatists. And John Smith is believed to have been the first one to be labeled a Baptist. So now these thoughts, adult baptism, separation of church and state, are not very popular on the mainland, they move to the United States of America. So Puritans wanted to change the church from within. Separatists wanted to change it from the outside. The Great Awakening energized the Baptist movement in the United States of America, and the Baptist community experienced spectacular growth, and the Baptists became the largest Christian community in many southern states, including amongst the black population. So the largest denomination in the United States today is the Baptist denomination. And isn't that fascinating that this mindset should be in the North American continent virtually having been hounded out of Europe? The Confession of Faith, they aligned themselves with the Westminster Confession of Faith. Their view on the Pope was that he was the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ. But you had these two views, the general Baptists and the particular Baptists. They believed in eschatology, end-time events. They had this divide between Calvinism and Arminianism, which we will talk about. And uh, some of them believed in speaking in tongues, some of them did not. Some of them were dispensationalists, some of them were not. So there were a whole host of ideas conflicting with each other within the Baptist movement. So here's a lesson from the English Baptist persecution. So the Baptist movement had emerged from the womb of British Puritanism and from seven congregations in London. In 1644, they grew to about 130 in 1660. But with the death of Cromwell in 1658, there was a growing fear that uh, this separatist movement was going to be a problem. And so they started persecuting these people and they enacted laws against them. For example, the Corporation Act, which said that uh, you had to swear to the supremacy of the English monarch. And then the Act of Uniformity in 1662. Worship in England and Wales is to be done according to the Book of Common Prayer. What was the Book of Common Prayer? 
the early Protestant reformers, their prayers had been written down in uh, the Book of Common, Common Prayer. Latimer, Ridley, Cranmer, all of those people. And you were only allowed to say those prayers because only those people had been inspired by the Holy Ghost. Anybody else who dared to say a prayer of his own to God, I mean, this was sacrilege. And uh, five-mile act that you were not allowed to preach your doctrine within five miles of any town or city, or the second covenantal act, pretense of any exercise of religion in any other name. So you were fined five shillings, and eventually these people were arrested. So if, well, let's look at just one Baptist story, and that's John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most read books in the world. And he was one of the first Baptists arrested for preaching. And what was his crime? That he thought he was to preach the gospel. And that he didn't say the prayers only in the common book of prayer, but said his own prayer to God. Good grief, you had to go to jail for that. So he was sentenced, and he was put on trial, and he was accused of having broken the Elizabethan Act, and uh, he wasn't educated, so how can a commoner, a mechanic, start preaching? That's unheard of. But Bunyan had a higher loyalty than obedience to an earthly monarch. The Holy Ghost never intended that men who have gifts and abilities should bury them in the earth. These people, they suffered for their faith. How many years did he spend in jail? Twelve. Twelve years in jail for daring to say his own prayer and believing that you must preach the gospel. Now, one of the greatest Baptist preachers of all time is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he read Pilgrim's Progress at the age of six, and he read it a hundred times. And even today, Christians are admonished, even from excellent sources, to read Pilgrim's Progress. And he published so many works that his series stands as the largest set of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. He was a great preacher, but did he have all the truth? That is the question. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a particular Baptist. What does that mean? And he was a fervent preacher for reform in the church. Believers in Christ's atonement, he wrote, are now in declared union with those who make light of it. Believers in the Holy Scriptures are in confederacy with those who deny plenary inspiration. Those who hold evangelical doctrine are in open alliance with those who call the fall a fable, who deny the personality of the Holy Ghost. We don't have problems like that today, do we? Who call justification by faith immoral, who hold that there is another probation after death. It is our solemn conviction that there should be no pretense of fellowship. Fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. So he called this the creeping compromise, the Graf Wellhausen hypothesis. Now who was Graf Wellhausen? He said the Bible is a book of myths. The first five books of Moses weren't written by Moses. They were written by many authors. 
Then he singles out Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution. The same issues are here today. History is repeating itself. But isn't it fascinating all these things are coming together? One truth after the other. And then they all spread out. All amongst these different denominations. This one having a little, that one having a little. This one arguing with that one. This one fighting about this issue. Is God going to leave this chaos behind? He was the prince of preachers. And uh, he wrote this, The Sword and the Trowel. And Charles Spurgeon preached against the new theology. I find it fascinating. This is a repetition of history. But was he a Calvinist? Was he a particular Baptist? Well, the answer is, in his own words, it is no novelty then that I am preaching no new doctrine. I love to proclaim these strong old doctrines that are called by nickname Calvinism, but which are surely and verily the revealed truth of God as it is in Jesus Christ. So here was a mindset that had permeated European thinking. And it took another great wave to dislodge some of this thinking. But we'll get to that at a later stage. Out of the Baptist movement then evolved the Seventh-day Baptist movement because all of these ideas were being circulated. And in the United States, they weren't being persecuted to the point of death. So the Seventh-day Baptists arose. And what did they believe? So individuals associated with the movement chose to accept punishment meted out by the state rather than renounce their Sabbath conviction. This is long before there is a Seventh-day Adventist. These people in the 1650s were already forming their ideas. Seventh-day Baptists from England arrived in Rhode Island in 1665 and they established the Sabbatarian Baptists in the United States of America. And one of them, in 1809, was Rachel Oakes. She was a Seventh-day Baptist. And she's the one who brought the idea of the Seventh-day Sabbath to a group that was developing at that time, which eventually would be forming the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And she approached uh, William Miller's preachers, with this doctrine of the Seventh-day Sabbath. So the Cottrell family looked favorably upon William Miller's Second Advent message but did not join the movement prior to 1844 because it did not acknowledge the Seventh-day Sabbath. So the Millerites knew nothing about the Sabbath. Here are their statements of belief. We uphold the individual's freedom of conscience in seeking to determine and obey the will of God. And then they quote the scriptures. They believed in God. We believe in one God, infinite and perfect, the creator. They believed in Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. They quote their scriptures. We believe that God the Father is sovereign over all. We believe in God the Son who became incarnate in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He gave himself on the cross as the complete and final sacrifice for sin. 
He's the mediator between God the Father and mankind. We believe in God the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. They believe all of these things. We believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. We believe that mankind was created in the image of God. We believe that we have a moral responsibility and are created to enjoy both divine and human fellowship. We believe that sin and salvation are connected. We believe that sin is disobedience to God and failure to live according to His will. It's amazing. We believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and lives eternally with the Father. We believe that the church of God is all believers gathered by the Holy Spirit and joined into one body. This is amazing. We believe in the priesthood of all believers and practice the autonomy of the local congregation. We believe in adult baptism. We believe in the Lord's Supper. We believe in the Sabbath. The early Advent movement regarded the Seventh-day Baptists as having embraced so many truths that they chose not to evangelize in areas where they were prominent. So how did all these things come about? We believe that Jesus Christ commissions us to proclaim the Gospels, to make disciples, to baptize and to teach people, to observe all his commandments. This is amazing. So all of these truths had been gathered through persecution on one continent. And on no other continent do we have a similar situation. Nowhere else in the world. If you go to Southern Africa, one group, Calvinist, church and state together, the same model as was practiced in Europe. If you go to the other continents, uh, Australia, New Zealand, all of those areas, they were populated by the Church of England mindset. Today there are other denominations, yes, but the majority have that same mindset. Only here in the United States of America and on this North American continent do you have this fermentation of ideas. And therefore, only where all these jewels of truth are gathered together can God, at the end of time, gather the jewels and bring them together into one movement. And when all these truths are gathered in one movement, do you think that the world will go along and say, finally, the truths are all together in one basket? We want to embrace it with joy? Do you think it will happen? What does history teach us? If every single one of these truths was persecuted and hounded out of the land, and if you didn't move, you were arrested, you were tortured to death, you were drowned, you were burnt at the stake, whether it was in a Protestant county or whether it was in a Roman Catholic county. All of these truths gathered together in one basket will as surely create persecution for the collective truth as it did for the individual truths as they came out of those places of persecution and found a foothold on the North American continent. And when these truths are gathered and the world is confronted with the final issue, 
Do you want all the truths of the Bible? Or do you want to stick to a truth that has not unfolded itself, that has been persecuted throughout all the ages? Do you want to join the persecutors? Or do you want to join the persecuted? And what will be the end result? What does eschatology teach us? These are the issues I want to talk about. Because today, there is this view that God has pieces of truth wrapped in error in all the various denominations out there and that that is good enough as long as they embrace that little bit of truth. If those truths were worth dying for, don't you think God wants to gather them into one movement and confront the world with them? Let us see what God will do as we go along this path and determine what the outcome of all of this will be and what the final message to the world will be and what the loud cry will be and what does it mean to come out of her, my people? What does it mean? She has become a house of demon and a house of every unclean and detestable bird. What do those verses mean? Doesn't humanity have the right to understand these issues? And if we can set it in a historic setting and show how it came together, then I'm sure that people who are conscientious and want to follow the leadings of the Lord, and not the great leaders and preachers, no matter how great they were or are, but the Word of God and the Word of God alone, will they not take their stand? Many will refuse. But thank God, not all. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.